0: So it's perhaps a bit strange, especially given Meg's uh, amazing presentation of our entry into this serious uh, and uh, actually often sad observance of Lent following our joyous season of Epiphany. It's a little bit strange to start by exploring a story about a party. Not just any party, but a party like a feast, a wedding feast, that ends, like the punchline of the story is 150 gallons of wine, right? Like the sort of wine that would never be found in the box wine aisle of your local grocery store. Like writer Margaret Feinberg calls this the H2O to Merlot miracle, right? (laughs) Throughout this Lenten season of repentance and preparation for Holy Week, my hope is that we'll continue to have our visions and our imaginations recalibrated. This is work that we started during Epiphany. I hope that it continues in a very specific way. Recalibrated so that we can see these signs that John's Gospel lays out. And so we'll call this series Signs of Salvation. You see, whereas the other three Gospels that are to be viewed together, they're called Synoptic Gospels, They frame these kingdom actions as miracles. John always wants to call them signs. These signs are meant to point to something. They're to point the recipients of these miracles. They're to point the onlookers around, and they're to point readers like us to not just recognize who Jesus is, but to believe in Jesus. Maybe for the first time, or maybe like his disciple traveling mates doubling down on the sort of trust that would sustain them through the darkness of Good Friday and which would propel them into the new reality created by Easter Sunday. So these signs are unabashed propaganda for the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated and will bring in full. And John is a sneaky good organizer of these signs. So I invite you guys throughout this series to kind of Put your detective hat on. If you actually have a hat like that, do that. Um, But figuratively, put your detective hat on to try to explore uh, how rich these, these signs are. There's like Easter eggs sprinkled all throughout them. Things going on, promises being fulfilled, that the time is up and that God is better than you ever could have imagined, and that the created world is chock full of grace and salvation is available to normal average, ordinary people like you and like me. To lead us into this first sign that is about excess, it seemed fitting to only use a poem to do that. And so uh, I wanna share a sonnet by Malcolm Guyte that I think nicely segues uh, into this wedding feast at Cana from our epiphany. It goes like this, and there's a slide for this, great. Here's an epiphany to have and hold a truth that you can taste upon the tongue. No distant shrines and canopies of gold or ladders to be climbed rung by rung. But here and now amidst your daily living where you can taste and touch and feel and see the spring of love, the fount of all forgiving flows when you need it, rich, abundant, free. Better than waters of some outer weeping that leave you still with all your hidden sin. Here is a vintage richer for the keeping that works its transformation from within. What price you ask me as we raise the glass, it cost our Savior everything he has. So I want to use a couple lines to, to dig into this. First, the epiphany to have and to hold because you see, immediately prior to this passage, and we treated this gospel, I think the second week of the new year, <clears throat> we had Nathaniel's Epiphany. Do we remember that? Where just in the course of a few moments, Nathaniel moves from talking down Jesus' hometown of Nazareth as some like backwoods Galilean hick town, towards confessing that Jesus is the king of Israel. That happens like in a matter of like two sentences, right? What good can come from Nazareth? You are the king of Israel. And then you fast forward three days to to our passage. I can't help but hear a little bit of Easter already sprinkled in there, but we'll hold off on that on the third day. And then about eight miles from Jesus' hometown, which might explain why Jesus' mom and his friends are there, to a wedding feast at Cana, whereby... Our Western rites, both participants, vow to have and to hold each other till death. Do they part again? That pledge of fidelity to death, keep that in your pocket for later. An ancient Near Eastern wedding might have lasted for about a week or so. Like, you don't get that much time off of work uh, these days. And it would have certainly included food, and wine, and dancing, these were no like Southern Baptist teetotalers, right? The fact, as a matter of fact, the Aramaic word for wedding feast is, is tied to drink, like it's in there, You're, this is expected. And so I say all this with a little bit of self irony since my dry wedding that lasted just a weekend would have been like anathema and like wedding malpractice to this imagination, right? Sure, there was still a lot of fun. There was also a lot of creative dancing, even without the aid of alcohol at our wedding. So there's the rub, though. At this wedding, the wine runs out before the party does. This becomes the perfect setting for Jesus' active ministry launch, where he dazzles with one of those like champagne pyramids, and then he never has to buy a drink in all of Galilee again. No, that's not what happened. Jesus' mom elbows him in the ribs and points out what's going on. And Jesus responds to his mother much the way my brother and I respond to Nan. Woman, what does that have to do with me, right? You, you, you all know Nan. You got that joke. Yes. She's not in here. We'll keep him coming. Oh, hey. <laughs> Before, <laughs> before though, we assume that this is like a classic brush-off move by Jesus, let's consider what it would mean for Jesus' ministry to launch, maybe why that time was not there yet. This is going to be the first of seven signs all pointing towards Jesus' glory, which still confuses us to say is going to be his ignominious death on the cross. Like that's what it means for this first domino to get pushed over, is that we're headed to the cross and there's no turning back. But alas, Mary turns to one of the waiters and says, do whatever he tells you. Nan, that's a classic Nan move too. <laughs> I'm not telling you, but I'm telling you. And here's the thing Jesus tells them to do something a bit strange, but not altogether out of the ordinary, and then he makes it extraordinary. Specifically, he gestured to six giant stone jars used for the temple for purification. If we had a bigger prop budget or any prop budget, I would have six giant stone jars here. <laughs> it's speculated that there were six to show for like incompleteness. Maybe not in the sense that these rites of purification were bad in and of themselves, but they, they weren't fulfilled. They weren't completed. They needed one more. This is like a box of donuts with 11 donuts in it, right? Six wanting to be seven. In the Jewish imagination, six was like sort of an ellipsis, like a dot, 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 waiting for God to finish the thought. He then asked the crew to literally fill them up with water. Notice all this filling language and the hints in this passage. And so there's six jars on the edge of completion waiting to be fulfilled. And then they're waiting for water. And then in the course of the time that it takes the crew to pump water and fill these with 150 or so gallons of water, the headmaster was able to ladle out the best wine that he's ever laid his palate to. Jesus not only fulfilled the assignment, but he exceeded Mary's expectations. Water got turned to wine, but not just adequate wine, the good stuff. For he knew, as Jean Vanier puts it, that water is dailiness, but wine is for rejoicing, and a wedding feast is a time to rejoice. While the immediate context of that rejoicing had to do with a bride and a groom being joined together in union the greater context was that the bridegroom had emerged and the reunion of heaven and earth was afoot the prophet Amos spoke in these terms in chapter 9 he says the days are coming declares the Lord when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by one treading grapes new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile They will rebuild ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Love had come to town, and a toast was in order. The word had become flesh and made its home among them, and we have seen his glory, but we'd also tasted it. We reveled in it. That glory made our cheeks a little rosy and our heads a little swimmy, right? Jesus was using parts of creation that we take for granted as signs to point to the new creation he was bringing about. So back to our sonnet in that line about when you need it, rich, abundant, free. I think, I think this passage, I think the sign tells us quite a bit about grace. Robert Farr Capon is a priest and a chef who writes about food and God, and he says, food is a daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness, ordained for the continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than useful. Unnecessary goodness. Sounds, of course, like another way of describing grace unnecessary goodness. The fact that God uses food and drink that not only nourishes us but also tastes good brings joy. It says a lot about the kind of God of grace that we're shown in Jesus. We talked about this in in, in, uh, baptism class this morning uh, about creation and how this God doesn't create out of necessity or conflict or, or violence, but out of grace and out of goodness and out of love. I'm struck by two things <clears throat> that the wedding at Cana teaches us about grace. Grace, of course, is the injection of possibility where there was once impossibility. It's gift in excess where there was scarcity. First is about the quantity of grace. Over and over throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses tangible miracles and signs to show how grace works, how grace operates in like this alternate economy of excess that we can scarcely recognize or imagine. In this case, probably a few barrels of wine would have <clears throat> done the trick, like kind of taper down the party, kind of release the guests, scatter a little bit, we would have done what was adequate to abate embarrassment on the the host's part, but no, with God's grace, there isn't just to be enough, but there's to be more than enough, like an absurd enough. In my life, one of the ways that I most often see this has to do with my own wife who loves hospitality and has an amazing gift for hospitality, but an amazingly poor gift for, like, knowing volume. And so when we have people over, like, we'll have, like, four people over and we'll cook, like, a half of a cow because, because, like, we cannot run out. That would be terrible to run out. We'll have leftovers for two weeks, but we will not run out. And sometimes that annoys me. But if I was really paying attention, I would see God's lavish, absurd, Quantity of grace, um, that welcoming people and being hospitable and making space. The second thing I think we learn is about the quality of grace. Perhaps the most subtly miraculous and mysterious part of this sign has to do with the fact that Jesus was able to spontaneously and instantly generate a beverage whose whole like quality relies on time and patience. Jesus didn't snap his fingers and create Coca-Cola or orange juice or something from a recipe. By very very definition, wine gets better with age. And according to someone on site whose job it was to know wine, this was very good wine. Let's marvel at that for a minute. Grace just isn't about massive quantity, but like granular level attention to detail. I think this, for us, is how grace can grow in our relationships over time. So often, serious relationships and friendships and marriages like assume like over time that, that what I can give to someone, the amount of grace I can afford to them and the amount of excitement I have over them is limited because I, I know everything that I need to know about them. But what if that that grace turns from a quantity thing to a quality thing where you drill in on specific details and you know what love looks like even better? That grace can grow because you'll grow in knowledge and skill in showing grace. Lastly, (coughs) I wanted to look at the line in that poem. What price, you ask me as we raise the glass, it'll cost our savior everything he has. Finally, the sonnet asks what the price of such a grace-filled feast is. And we've all been well taught that there's no such thing as free lunch. That's the first line in any economics class you'll ever take. We know, someone somewhere is footing the bill. There's a cost for everything. A personal experience with this. Years ago, I, uh, not long after I first came to Durham and I was living here, um, working at a coffee shop, working a couple side jobs. And I was working at, at this coffee shop, and we had this guy, one of my coworkers named Raul. And Raul was like the slickest character. He was like. St- like too cool, and he knew it. Like we we were working at a coffee shop and Raul drove a Beamer, like a new like late model Beamer. And I think he worked at a coffee shop just to make Beamer payments, right? And, like Raul, like um, when he would spill like milk on his, uh, on his like iron dry clean slacks, he would go home during his 10 minute break to change. Like that was Raul, like Raul was cool. And Raul, the whole time that we worked there, he always talked about this maitre d' job that he had downtown at this really nice Italian restaurant, and he always said to everyone, "Like you need to come, I'll I'll hook you up." And 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 most of the people, really all the people except for me, like one year into my marriage, were like, "I don't know, Raúl. Like uh, I don't uh, I don't know what you got going here. I don't know what you mean by hook hook it up, right?" But I was like, "Sounds good. I'll, I'll get Rachel. We'll go on a date." Well, like. Raul's going to hook us up. I know a guy, right? (laughs) So we get all dressed up, and Rach said last night, she's like, I still remember what I was wearing for that. So it was very memorable. Uh, So we go, we sit down at this feast, and Raul is the maitre d', like, he didn't lie about that, um, does, like, run that joint, and they're bringing us everything, like, multiple entrees, every appetizer on the menu. They start bringing out... Like wine, and I don't even drink wine, and they're bringing out wine. Rach doesn't drink any alcohol, and they're like plying her with like dessert wine. She's like, oh, you don't like wine, you'll like this wine. And like they're bringing like dessert, and we're like, where's some more? It's stop, you know, stop, please. And especially like throughout the meal, we're like, what does I'm gonna hook you up mean? <laughs> like, like is this just like a disc? Because we wouldn't order this, like, we don't do this. Like, can we even afford to tip on this? You know? Um, and and it was it, it wound up being completely comped but like we did have that that, that feeling of like who is going to pay for this and we never exactly found out who was going to pay for it but that restaurant doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's what happened there. In the letter to the Ephesians Paul also picks up this wedding theme basically Doing some version of marital counseling on how husbands and wives are to relate to each other in mutual submission. And he even turns up the expectation on husbands that might not have happened in that society, entreating them to quote, love their wives just as, which is means in the same way as as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by washing her with water through the word to present herself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You get a little sample of the run-on sentences that dominate Ephesians. And then the writer catches his breath and sneaks in. All of that, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In short, husbands and wives, if you're doing this right, you're dying for each other. And what's more, you as a spouse or as part of this Jesus-wedded church are to be purified. In light of our story in Cana, though, what if part of what it means to be purified is that you're also to be transfigured? You're to be made into something new, something that, that gestures towards and leans, uh, leans into the new creation? What if being holy and blameless means being joined to Jesus and throwing down at Jesus' party because there's no wallflowers in the wedding feast of the Lamb? This whole story is about Jesus. Don't, don't miss that. Jesus is the only one in this whole story mentioned by name. Have you noticed that? I've been saying Mary, but it says Jesus' mother, Jesus' friends, the steward, the head steward. The only one. So this, the the effect of that is almost like like a spotlight Rembrandt painting where like the viewer is basically forced to look at one character. Or like the credits where you have like the stars rolling down and then there's like rude guy on the boardwalk, you know. Looking lady number three, key grip boy, Jesus, right? Like we can't ignore what this is all about. More than the wine, more than even the wedding feast, Jesus is the actor in the focus. Jesus' mother's best advice to the waiters is also our best advice. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Or that this sign caused his disciples to believe. Maybe that's what we walk out of here with. It says, he did this. This is his first miraculous sign. And his disciples believed. Believed into him. Epistison uh, ice auton. Believed into him. Trusting is an ongoing reality. You see they've already believed. They've already left their stuff and followed him. But they're believing again each day. And they're believing into him like further up and further in to Jesus. Practice made perfect by practice. And you do this because Jesus is both the new creation and the bringer of new creation, the vintage and the sommelier, the feast and the bridegroom. We'll celebrate him as feast in a minute around this table. And Jesus is calling you and I to this filled-up life. Later in John, you get, I've come that I might give you abundant life, life that overflows. This is a transformed life that mostly just requires our availability. This one, do what he says. Your willingness... It's your availability is just your willingness to be taken up into the seven minus one incompleteness and to be changed. To join into Jesus' campaign to purify creation by transfiguring it. By making new wine, and not just barely makes the grade new wine, but new wine that blows your best idea of old wine out of the water with such amplitude, such abundance, such quality, you never could have seen coming. This feast, of course, does cost quite a bit. It starts this slow movement towards the cross that would cost Jesus his life. That would cost God his only son who so loved the world. (laughs) Our joining into this grace should also cost us quite a bit. John 12, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We guys pray into this with me? Lord, fill us. Just using what we have, um, just fill us with yourself. Uh, That might mean that you need to empty us first. That might mean that you need to fill us so that all the sediment at the bottom uh, washes out and overflows. Lord, we ask that you fill us. In the time that it takes for you to fill us, we ask that you you turn us into something new, that you make a beautiful thing um, and a useful thing and a joyous, festive thing out of us, just us. We thank you for Jesus um, give us the courage and um, the uh, patience and the endurance to uh, look at Jesus and do whatever he tells us to. Uh, that's it. Um, help us give ourselves to this work during the season of, of preparation and fasting and awaiting the feast of Easter and resurrection and new creation. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.